If you would please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 913. So what we're doing, we're continuing this look at the early church. And in many ways, what we see here in the early church is the model church. There's much that we can learn from these early chapters in Acts. There was a, an awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence, and, the, and there was power in this early church that we read about. And it was, as a result, the church was characterized by really an overwhelming sense of peace, an overwhelming sense of joy and unity and power. Many, many thousands were coming to faith. And among these new believers, there was a, a radical generosity. We looked at this, so much so that there was none in need. Everyone had what they need. I mean, it was an amazing and it was an exciting time. But it was also a time of danger. There was danger from without and, and danger from within. It was a time of persecution. And we saw this in, uh, in chapter 4, when Peter and John were arrested and they were abused, all for speaking about Jesus. And they were ordered not to preach in the name of Jesus. And as dangerous as that was, that wasn't the most dangerous. Even more dangerous was the corruption that came from within. See, there was a danger that people would want to be part of this new community, not because of Christ, not because they were converted, but simply for the practical and the physical benefits that they could get in this community. And there was a danger that people would get caught up in the excitement, but not really believe. And we saw this last week when we looked at Ananias and Sapphira. They put God to the test. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, not intentionally. But they lied to the Holy Spirit and the fact that they didn't truly believe that the Holy Spirit was present, that he was active in his church. And God, in his mercy, he acted quickly, quickly and decisively to protect the purity of this young church, knowing that they would not be able to fulfill the mission that was given to them by Jesus himself to be his witnesses without the Holy Spirit, without a true conversion. Well, in today's passage, we see again this model church in its peace, its purity, and its power. And this is evidenced by the signs and wonders they do, the, the, these mighty, miraculous acts. But this was also a preparation for the church. As we look at next time, there's more persecution coming. And this was a time to strengthen their faith and get them ready for this persecution that they will receive. So Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits as they were all healed. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us today. Be with me. Speak through me. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear from you. Lord, these will not just be a history lesson. This will not just be a time of hearing some nice words, but it will be a, an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that each one of us here will be changed. will be changed more into his image. I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we've all heard of the concept of collateral damage in a battle or in a war. And we saw this in the, in the Gulf War. We saw this in the War on Terror. 
We see it now in, in the war between Israel and Hamas. See, collateral damage is when there's unintended harm caused to civilians and, and non-combatants in a battle. And there is real pain, there is real harm, there is real damage, real suffering, even death caused to those who are simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And no matter how much care is taken to reduce this collateral damage, it's, it's one of the sad realities of war, especially when you're fighting an opponent who doesn't value human life and uses civilians as shields for their combatants. Well, just as there is collateral damage surrounding a battle or war, there is also, on a more positive note, collateral blessing surrounding the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. And God's blessing on his church and on his people cannot be contained, but it, but it overflows to those around the church, even those who are not believers. Even unbelievers are blessed by their proximity to the church and proximity to believers, proximity to where God is active and working. And this is what we see in this passage. We see collateral blessing. And this should challenge us, really, to challenge us to see if we are a collateral blessing to our family and our friends and our neighbors. Is our community blessed because of their proximity to Northgate? Even if they never step foot into our church, are they blessed? Are our neighbors blessed because of proximity to us as believers? Even if we never get a chance to share the gospel with them, are they blessed? And these are questions that I, I want us to be thinking about as we look at this passage this morning. And we're going to go through this passage verse by verse, and I want us to be keeping in mind, how can I be a blessing? How can I show this collateral blessing to others? So let's jump right in. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So a couple of uh, observations from this verse. It says that signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. So these were not rare events. They were not obscure events. These were not events that were, were done in secret, that only known to the leaders, only known to those who had some special anointing, those who were elite. These signs and wonders were, were common. They were visible. All were seeing them. All were experiencing these signs and wonders. See, there was, there was no denying the reality of this work. Even, even the opponents of the church were forced to recognize this work. Now, they denied the significance, but the works themselves could not be denied. Another observation from this verse is that these signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles. This means that they were done not randomly. They were not done chaotically. It, it wasn't just a noise of people doing these things. There was order. There was purpose in these signs and wonders. And the apostles, they represent the church. They always connected. They always connected the signs and wonders that they did with Christ, with the person and work of Christ. They connected it with the gospel. And we had seen this in Peter's sermon at Pentecost and his sermon in the temple after the miraculous healings of the lame man. And these signs and wonders were done and they were meant to get the attention of the people. And not, and not just to draw the attention solely to the apostles, not solely to the miracles. The miracles themselves were not the end goal. But rather the miraculous signs and the wonders, they were always used as a vehicle. A vehicle to point beyond themselves, to point beyond the apostles, to point to Christ and Christ alone. So a third observation from this verse. It says they were... It says they were all together in Solomon's portico. So what we see here is there's unity. There's unity. And it's not just a unity in location, but it's also a unity in spirit. 
See, the Holy Spirit had, had weaved them together to be one heart and one soul, as we read in chapter 4, verse 32. And because of this unity, there was a genuine love for one another. There was a genuine concern for their brothers and sisters. And so much so that they, were, they were, had no material uh, lack. Those who had a material blessing, they would use their possessions. They would sell their possessions to help those in need. And this was voluntary, but this was a self-sacrifice. And this came from the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit inspired unity. And this description of the early church, this is not just someone who came and said a prayer, someone who responded to an altar call. This is not someone who just invited Jesus into their life or looking for fire insurance as we frequently uh, characterize the church today. No, these were people who, who, who it was real for them. It was real. They, they were completely transformed. These people were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were controlled by the Holy Spirit. Knowing Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, being Jesus' witness, this was the most important thing for all of them. They all put Christ above themselves. They were all like John the Baptist. John the Baptist in John 3.30. They said, Christ must increase, I must decrease. And this is the only way. This is the only way we can see the type of power and unity described in this verse. And you may ask, well, well how does this verse apply today? Right? We, we don't see that the church has this power to do miraculous signs today and, and wonders today. Right? I can't, if someone was, was, was uh, a layman came in here, I couldn't just say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. We don't have that power. See, we believe these physical miracles, miracles have ceased at the completion of the New Testament canon. We believe that these miracles, they were meant, they had a purpose, and that was to authenticate the church, to authenticate the authority of the church. Now we believe scripture. Scripture is that authoritative, that author, uh, authentication. See, I don't need to perform miracles to validate the gospel that I proclaim, that I preach. I validate it through Scripture. You check Scripture. That's why we say open your Bibles. You check Scripture. You, you check it against that. And Scripture tells us that if anyone, if a preacher, if an apostle, even if an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, it says let him be accursed. That means let him go to hell if he preaches a different gospel. And these are strong words. But if we preach a different gospel, we are to be accursed. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel proclaimed by Scripture? Well, the simple, simplest summary of the gospel is found in the most well-known verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved the world. God took the initiative. God sent his one and only Son to take the penalty of the sin of us. And when we have faith in him, when we come to him in faith, we are not condemned. We are given everlasting life. That is the gospel, a simple message. So as a church, and as believers, we no longer have, nor do we need, the gift to perform miraculous signs and wonders. But this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not active. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit does not display supernatural power through the church today. He certainly does. See, we may not see these physical healings, but we do still, we don't have these direct, immediate healings, but we still do see healings. We do see healings. They are in response to our prayer. That's why we're praying. We're praying for all these, these people who are sick because God does heal through bold and persistent prayer. 
And when we pray, we are confident. We are confident the Lord will hear these prayers. And he will answer these prayers for our good and for his glory. And we humbly accept. We humbly accept that those prayers may not be answered the way we pray them. But we know, we know for certain that the answers will result in God's glory and will result in our good nonetheless. But even more important, even more important than this physical power, there is spiritual power. As a church, as Christians, we have the power to declare God's forgiveness of sins through the gospel. We have the power to proclaim reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed as our substitute on the cross. And it was shed so that God could be both just, that is, he can punish sins that are an offense against his holiness, and he can be the justifier. That is, he provides Christ as the substitute so he doesn't have to punish the sins in the sinner. And this is given to all who have faith in Christ. Faith is the instrument that applies Christ's work to us personally. And my friends, there is real freedom. Real freedom that results from the gospel. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from addiction. Freedom from spiritual bondage to sin. Freedom to die to sin. To die to self. Freedom to live for Christ. Freedom to display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Ability to display unity and radical generosity that we see in the early church. Ability for us to grow in sanctification, grow in Christ-likeness, to become more and more like Christ. And this is a power that should be regularly seen by us as individual Christians and should be regularly seen in our church today. And this should be evident to all, even to unbelievers. This should be the collateral blessing for those who are in proximity to us. So even if they don't understand what it means, even if they try to, to explain it away, but nonetheless, the, the power cannot be denied. It is evident to all. My question is, is this the way our neighbors see us? Do we display this collateral blessing to our community? Let's move on to verse 13. It says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So none of the rest here, this is referring to unbelievers. It says that none of the unbelievers, those who saw the signs and wonders, none of them dared to join the church. And this is because they saw what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They knew something real was going on in this church, and this frightened them. They weren't going to join us if they didn't really believe. And they were, even though they were attracted, they were attracted to the, to the peace, they were attracted to the joy. They're especially attracted to the generosity that they saw, that none was in need, but they dared not join. Because unlike Ananias and Sapphira, they recognized that something real was going on in this church. Something real, something powerful, and that scared them. And I think this fear that they had, I think this fear was actually a, a, a grace from God. See, they recognized that the church was holy. Not sinless, but holy. And these unbelievers, they recognized they were not holy. And they did not want to get near something that was holy. And why weren't they holy? They weren't holy because in their unbelief, they were not covered by the righteousness of Christ. And they sensed this. They knew this. And they wanted to stay as far away from as possible. And again, this was a grace from God protecting them and protecting his church. And I think the unbelievers, I think unbelievers should be a little uncomfortable here at Northgate. 
Unbelievers are certainly welcome. We, we want unbelievers here. We want, we want to talk with them. We want to share the gospel with them. We want to answer any questions that they may have. We want to help remove any stumbling blocks that they may have to coming to the faith. But the worship service, what we are doing right now, this is not for unbelievers. This, what we are doing right now, is first and foremost for God. We are worshiping God. It is because he, we are his people. We are ascribing worship to God. Just like we read in the Psalms. Just like we read in it was what we sing. It is what is his do. We, we cannot help but worship him. That is what is natural for us to do. And that is the first and primary purpose of what we're doing today. But secondly, secondly, what we're doing today is a means of grace. A means of grace for God's people to know him better. To love him more. And it means both a means for us to grow further in our sanctification, that is to become more Christ-like, and it, but it also it satisfies our, our deepest longings as we worship. As believers, our deepest longing is to know Christ better, to commune with him, to be with him more. As, as again, as John the Baptist says, he must increase, we must decrease. That is what we do during worship. And an unbeliever, an unbeliever really should be weirded out by our worship service. They should be offended by my preaching. They should be offended because it is diametrically opposed to everything that an unregenerate man believes. It's an assault on their, their self-centeredness, thinking that they are the center of the universe and their works righteousness. Think it's something I do that makes me right with God. The gospel is an assault, an offense against all that. Now sadly, sadly, uh, there are many self-professing unbelievers, people who will admit to you, I don't believe any of this stuff. But they are very comfortable in many of our churches. And that's because they don't see anything supernatural in the church. To them, church is simply a tradition. It's simply a nice thing to do. They, they like the music. They like the people. But they don't really believe any of the nonsense that the church teaches. There's no fear in them because they don't see any supernatural power. They do not see the, the Holy Spirit active and working. That's why there's no fear. But my friends, this was not the case with the early church. The Spirit's activity was undeniable, even by unbelievers. And that's why they dared not join the church. But notice the next verse, or sorry, the next part of verse 13. It said, none of them dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So even though they dared not join the church, nonetheless, they still had a lot of respect for the believers. They held them in high esteem. And this may seem contradictory, right? We would think that if, if they didn't join the church, if they were afraid of joining the church, that they would be hostile to the church. Or, or at best, ambivalent, not want to think anything about it. Be neutral, just pay no attention. Close my eyes to us. That's what we would think. Now, there certainly were those who opposed the church. We saw this in the, in the persecution shown to Peter and John in, in verse 4 by the powerful religious leaders who arrested them and who threw them and, and commanded them not to preach in the name. And we'll see this even further in chapter 5. But this reaction was really the reaction of a few. This was not the reaction of the majority of unbelievers. The reaction we see in verse 13 is that the people held the believers in high esteem. They respected the believers. They recognized that the church was doing good and that they were bringing blessings to others, even if they weren't there, even to those outside the church. They recognized this collateral blessing of the church. And again, do unbelievers see this blessing in us? Do they see it in Northgate? Are we in other churches? Are we seen as a net positive to the community or a net negative to the community? And we need to understand that even to get to this point where these unbelievers were, to recognize the collateral blessing of the church, to hold us in high esteem, we need to understand that disability is itself a, gra a grace from God. 
It is a grace of God. It is not natural. It's not what they would naturally want to do. It is from common grace. And the question is, what will they do with this common grace? These unbelievers who hold the church in high esteem, what they do is they find themselves there in an unstable position. See, think about, think about a pendulum. If you think about a pendulum on a grandfather's clock, it's, it's in a stable position. If you move it a little bit out, it will come back. The forces will push it back to equilibrium. Now think about turning it upside down, turning that pendulum up here. You can balance it up there, but if you let it go just a little bit, it's going to go outside. That's an unstable equilibrium. Well, that's how these, believe, these unbelievers are. They are in an unstable equilibrium because there are forces. There are forces trying to push them out of this position where they're not in part of the church, they don't want to be part of the church, but they have a lot of respect for the church. And these forces are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil oppose God, oppose his church. And what they want to do is they want to remove this positive view that the unbelievers have of the church. They want to remove this proximity they have of the church. They want to get them as far away from the church as possible because they're afraid that the gospel will have an effect on them. So these forces are trying to push them. And what the forces will do is they will highlight the failings of the church. They will exaggerate the hypocrisy of the church and they'll try to foster this hatred in the unbeliever for all things of God. Or what they'll do is they'll seek to inoculate the unbeliever against the gospel by attracting him to a false gospel or attracting him to a false church. But thankfully, thankfully the world, the flesh, and the devil are not the only forces seeking to upset this unstable equal, equilibrium enjoyed by the recipients of this collateral blessing. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is also actively drawing the unbeliever to himself and to the church through this collateral blessing. The Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. Now we know that continual and, and profane resisting of the Holy Spirit in willful suppression of the truth in unbelief, we know this leads to the Spirit graciously removing his illumination. And this results in that horrible, horrible downward spiral of depravity that's described in Romans chapter 1. But we also know, we also know that the Lord is long-suffering. He's not desiring that any should perish. And he will persist in drawing these unbelievers to himself and giving them the grace to overcome their fear and to submit to Christ's lordship and come to him in faith and then Come and join the church and taking this admiration for believers, turning it into becoming a believer themselves. And this is exactly what we see in verse 14. The gospel goes forth and is successful in growing the church. Verse 14 says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And notice that it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. This implies that the rate of church growth is even increasing. This is, the, this is the ultimate purpose of this collateral blessing. It is to bring the unbelievers to themselves. This is Chimay Morris said. We are to pray that they come to know, the, the, know Christ, become believers. See, being in, in the presence of believers and in proximity to the church and exposes the unbelievers to the means of grace. It's like being exposed to a virus, a good virus that... Once you get it, it infects you, and then it propagates through the community, infecting all with new life. See, unlike a, a physical virus that leads to sickness and death, 
the virus of the gospel, the collateral blessing of proximity to believers and in, in, in the church leads to spiritual health, leads to vitality, leads to eternal life. Also notice that this expansion here is not limited to men. It's not limited to the heads of families. It's not limited to the community leaders. The text says that multitudes of both men and women believed. Not just men, but men and women. And it's really hard for us to grasp the significance of this, especially in our 21st century egalitarian culture. It's it's really hard for us to understand just how radical an idea this would have been in the patriarchal culture of the ancient times. So the idea that God would create a church, create an entity that was not just open to men, but open to both men and women, and not just the men of high noble birth, but to all positions. And shortly we'll see through, the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed it yet in, in this point in Acts, but we'll shortly we'll see that the church is open to both Jews and Gentiles. This would have been a completely revolutionary idea at the time. Now for us now, we need to realize We need to realize that the church is not just for people who look like us. It's not just for the people we're comfortable with, people of our social or economic status, people who we would naturally associate. No, the gospel is for all. As a matter of fact, the church would be with people we would not naturally associate associate with. It's not just for for the people we think that can help us. It's not just for the people with deep pockets who can support the church. No, the gospel is for all. The church is open to sinners. That's your only requirement. You need to be a sinner to come, and you need Christ, and it is open to all. There is no distinction. We are to be a blessing to all. We are to welcome all. Verse 15 then gives us the specifics of what this collateral blessing through the church to the community looked like in Acts. So verse 15 we see, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So we need to explain what's going here. So remember, there, there were three main events that led to the rapid growth of the church. The first was at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured upon on his church, and the people were, were, were speaking in these unknown tongues, and people wanted to know what it meant. And Peter then explained what it meant. And this led to a 25-fold increase in the church. The church went from 120 to over 3,000 souls as a response to this one sermon. So that's the first event. The second event that led to this rapid growth of the church and also led to persecution was Peter and John's healing of the layman in the temple. The man who came in there, they, they saw the people of the temple said, what is going on? That, that got their attention. And then more thousands joined the church. And the third factor leading to the rapid growth was the community of the church, the joy, the unity, the radical generosity shown by the members, and the fact that there was no need among the members. But of these three, I think the event that was driving what we read here in verse 15 was the miraculous healing at the temple. See, the physical healing is what got people's attention. We need to understand this was a time of much brokenness. This was before the common grace of modern medicine that we have now, which itself is, is a result of a Christian worldview, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But this was a time of physical deformity, illness, brokenness. This was the norm, not the exception. This was the norm. And there were many, many who needed and wanted this healing. And the healings were not just a gimmick. It was not just to draw people to the gospel. Rather, the healings represented what Christ came to do. Christ came to break this curse, this curse of the fall. 
And through the gospel, the creation is now being restored to what God had initially intended it to be. And this re restoration this will not be fully and finally complete until Christ returns. But this process that started with this miraculous healings and the, and the modern medicine that we have now is continuing and continuing to, to, to show this what Christ has come to do. And these healings, they were not limited to, to believers. They were open to all. The man at the temple, he, he was simply asking for alms. He knew nothing about Jesus. He knew nothing about Peter. He knew nothing about John. He just saw these guys who may be able to help him, may be able to give him some alms. But not only was the man physically healed, he was then spiritually healed in the name of and by the power of Jesus Christ. And what we're reading here in verse 15, this is the people's attempt to, to mass produce the miracle. They, they heard of the healings, and they were bringing people, all the people who needed healings, to the apostles. The apostles couldn't, couldn't physically go to all of them, so they were bringing them to him. And it seems strange when we read about this, that some were healed even by the shadow, the shadow of Peter falling on them. Now, this, this is not magic. This is not magic. The, the power to heal was the same in each case. It was God who was doing the healing. God was using different methods and by all these methods, they tied to the apostles. They, they were validating the apostles' testimony. And it was all pointing to Jesus. It was all about Jesus. Jesus was the one who healed them. And Jesus himself healed using many different modes. In some healings, he, he touched a person. In other healings, he, he made mud and rubbed it on their eyes. In some, he simply spoke. In some, he, he spoke from a distance. He said, your servant will be healed miles away. We even have the example that Nathan read for us in our gospel reading of the woman who was healed merely by touching the, the hem of his, of his garment. But all of these healings validated Jesus. And in some way, all of these healings that we see in this verse, they validate the apostles' work and the apostles' testimony about Jesus. So these healings and the mercy and the compassion that they showed, the blessing that they were to those who received them, this was the reason why the unbelievers held the church in high esteem. Many of them were being healed. Many of them were getting better. Many of them were coming to faith. And this was a collateral blessing on the community. And my friends, this healing was a free gift from God. The church didn't, didn't charge. They were, they, they were not asking for money for the healing. No, it was all given free. And what this did is it was a pointer. It was a pointer to the true healing, the real healing, which is the free gift of salvation the healing that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a church, as individual Christians, what are the ways that we can be a blessing to our community? How can we display this free gift of salvation offered through the gospel to those who do not have Christ? There's nothing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. How can we do this? What does it look like? My friends, this is our challenge. This is our challenge. What is our collateral blessing of Northgate? What is the result of our faith here in Albany? Lastly, let's take a look at this last verse, verse 16. It said, The people all also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I think it's interesting for us to notice where the people were coming from to be healed. It says they came from all the towns around Jerusalem. See, at this time, the Christian church only existed in one place in all the world, and that place was Jerusalem. But what was Jesus' command to the churches in Acts 1.8? This is the theme verse. I mention this in every sermon. 
Acts 1.8 said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the mission was for the church to expand, to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And what we see here in verse 16 is that through these healings, the church is actually expanding beyond Jerusalem. People were coming from the surrounding towns. They were coming from all Judea. They may be even coming from Samaria in order to be healed. And God would use these healings to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem and to prepare them, to prepare these places to receive the gospel and to enable the church to fulfill its mission, to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. My friends, this is the same mission that is given to us today. It is given to each one of us as individuals and it's given to us corporately as a church. And our application today is for us to figure out what is our collateral blessing. What do we have to offer the world? How can we serve them? How can we prepare them to receive the true blessing? The true blessing that is the gospel of grace. My friends, this is our mission. This is our calling. This is our joy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a great gift. You have given us the gift of the gospel. You have given us the Holy Spirit. And Father, we are not to put this under a bushel. We are to let this light shine. And I pray, Father, for Northgate. I pray for every single person in this room, everyone who's listening on the live stream, everyone who hears my voice at some time, Lord, that we will take this commission seriously and we will seek to be a blessing to all those we come into contact with. We will seek to be to, to offer collateral blessings to those who do not know you and hope that you will use us us as weak and frail to be the instruments that you use to, to instill and to impart saving grace to those who do not need, know you. Lord, we pray that you will be glorified in this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.